Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and business exit planning, legal technology, law practice management, law firm leadership, and well-being. First of all, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. I am joined today by Rachel Trollson. Rachel is one of my co-members at Vandenack Weaver and Trollson. Today we are going to reverse roles, and Rachel is going to interview me about asset protection strategies for preserving accumulations of wealth. Thanks for joining me today, Rachel, and I particularly appreciate you taking on the role of interviewer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this will be different. This will be fun. Um, So can you start off by explaining um, generally what asset protection is? So asset protection is very simply, I've got some wealth. And I want to protect it. So there's this thought process that asset protection, a lot of times when the term asset protection comes up, people think, oh, that means I need to go do a foreign asset protection trust, or I need to do one of these domestic asset protection trusts type of things. But that's not it at all. There's a lot of really simple ways to protect assets. So Mm -hmm. it's not about creating trust. It might be simply... We have these various situations, and I think we've talked a little bit on some other episodes about we can try and protect assets from taxing authorities, so we look at strategies for that. Maybe we have a business owner who has just exited his business, 
And rather than having his business, which, by the way, while you own that business, there's also asset protection for that business. But now we've exited and we have significant assets and we want to protect the assets from the businesses that we've exited. So one of the things that you and I joke about is we should come up with different ways. We do this with estate plan because estate plan, a lot of times people think means draft a trust and have a will. Right. And it means a lot more than that. It's overall holistic planning, looking at a lot of issues. And the same thing about asset protection. A lot of people think that asset protection either means I do one of these fancy expensive trusts or it's a Medicaid trust. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about asset protection planning in a more holistic perspective, it might be the Medicaid planning. It might be a foreign asset protection trust. But on a more day-to-day basis, it's going to be the context of saying, okay, I'm doing an estate plan. I've accumulated retirement assets, whether they're in a retirement plan, an investment account, I bought rental real estate, uh, whatever the case might be, I have a business. And I like to keep that less susceptible to creditor claims, which can include somebody who's suing you for whatever reason the case might be. Let's say you own a ski resort and there was a ski lift type accident and you want to make sure that that doesn't come through and you have personal liability for that ski resort. Or if you're a professional subject to licensing, like medical professionals, lawyers, accountants, that liability is personal despite having an entity. So you have more concerns about protecting assets. So it's a pretty broad description. It's just saying, well, I'm trying to make myself a little less susceptible to somebody divorcing me. somebody suing me, whatever the case might be. Right. So asset protection can apply to um, a wide variety of people. It just depends on what type of planning they need, what type of asset protection they need. And it should just generally be a discussion as part of an estate planning process. Right, right, right. So what are the goals then of asset protection planning? So the goal in general, again, is safeguarding assets. You're trying to level the litigation playing field. So sometimes asset protection... It's simply about layering. Okay. So there is, I had a conversation recently with somebody who said, well, I get all of the tax strategies. There's only so many ways to save and reduce taxes. But with asset protection, there seems to be an endless number of strategies. And my, I thought about that. And I thought, not really that, you know, we pretty much have the same strategies in tax planning And I like to think there's a lot of different strategies Uh and that we do unique designing, and that's why I never get bored. And the same thing with asset protection. There's the Mm -hmm. basics. We have exemptions state to state. We have trusts, different types of trusts. We have entities. We have things like which jurisdiction should we be in for an entity or a trust. And so we want to look at all of those issues in achieving. But the goals, again, are client-specific. Right. So at one point... Florida was a tough state to be a medical professional in, and malpractice insurance was so expensive that I had physician clients going bare. So we were looking at estate plan or asset protection strategies for those who chose to stay in Florida and go bare on malpractice insurance. Another area is just high liability businesses. So Mm -hmm. if clients in very high liability businesses, and they want to be sure that the liability stays with the business and isn't going to come through to right. them personally. We also might just have somebody who's a target. Let's say you're a successful investment banker and you have wealth. A lot of times wealthy people are simply the target of litigation. Oh, he's got so much, she's got so much. 
she's not going to miss a couple million bucks, so I'm just going to sue her. Right. You know, as lawyers, we regularly get calls. I remember getting a call at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning one time from a guy who said, I sat on this stool and it broke. And should I call a lawyer? And I said, are you hurt? And he goes, um, should I be? I'm like, what? I'm like, if you're hurt, you should call a doctor. Is that what I need to do so I can sue the company that built this stool? Oh, no. Now, mind you, the stool said that the proper weight on that stool was no more than 200 pounds, and this guy weighed about 400. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into that conversation. Right. It was a, you know, a friend of my ex-spouse's at the time. It's like, um, okay, but so there's people out there like wanting to file suits about anything and everything, right, right. and they do file suits. And there's nothing that says your suit, look, you can get thrown out for a frivolous suit. Mm-hmm. But we see a lot of crazy suits get filed, and litigation is, is a big deal. So you might be concerned about somebody who's going to sit on a stool at your house mm-hmm. that maybe they shouldn't. I'll admit after getting that call early in my career, I'm really careful about the chairs that I have <laughs> and the weight limits so that, okay, guests. you can't sit on that chair, right? <laughs> but anyway, the goals are depending. Are we trying to avoid taxes? Mm-hmm. Are we trying to protect myself from the possibility that my spouse divorces me? Am I trying to protect myself from a high liability career? And exactly what we're trying to protect ourselves defines the goals. Right, right. And so asset protection might look different across time, too. So oftentimes you talk about planning, doing asset protection on a continuum. So what does that look like? So I say there's the super protective end of the continuum and the less protective end of the continuum. And when I'm working with somebody on a business planning or estate planning issue, We talk about both of that. There's the super protective, do you really need it? And some people are so concerned about their risks that even if I'm sitting there, and I just don't make any judgment, I have to Mm -hmm. appreciate that we all have different experiences and different perspectives. And what is really important to me, you might sit there and go, why do you care? Well, I do. And you just come to respect that same way that I've had clients walk in with some little item and had a staff member laugh at them. I'm like, don't ever laugh because that's going to be a bike part. And this mm-hmm. kid's going to get a patent on that and make millions. And I've had situations like that happen, mm-hmm. right? So the continuum estate planning is the super protective versus the not so protective. So if you want the super protective end of the continuum, well, let's talk about foreign asset protection trusts. And let's talk about foreign entities. And let's talk about which foreign jurisdiction you can put some assets and protect them from U.S. creditors. Then let's talk about domestic asset protection trusts and what we should do in in that arena. That's the really protective end of the continuum. The less protective end of the continuum is you come in and say, I kind of care, but it's not super important. So we might just look at the basics of entity formation. Mm -hmm. What are the exemptions? How are we structuring your assets when we do your estate plan? So we've at least thought about the exemptions from creditors and done some very basic, simple asset protection. And there's this whole slew of things you can do in between. In the trust world, for example, I always say to a client who might give their assets, I'm going to give my assets outright to my children. Their children are in their 50s. They're successful. And when I first got really serious about asset protection planning, it was when I had a 50-year-old, very successful Wall Street guy sitting at my table with his mom. His mom was like, of course I'm giving it to him outright. He's very successful and manages his money really well. And he looks at me and says, see, 
This is exactly why I need you to explain to my mom (laughs) that I'm a target of litigation and a target of a whole lot so she can create a trust that's a third-party trust Mm -hmm. as opposed to me creating a self-settled trust. So I want her to leave my assets and trust for life. I have to say that I was originally with mom thinking, what? Uh And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. What a good point. So one of the very simple ends of asset protection is, hey, let's, instead of giving things outright to kids at 30, 35, and 40, who knows what your kid's going to be doing at 30. And I got tired of having a big distribution go out of a trust to a kid who turned 35, and then his spouse files for divorce the next day. Mm -hmm. Or you've had the situation where they go out to drink to celebrate, and they you know, have a DUI and hit and run that night type of thing. So if you're going to give it to them outright because they're responsible, there's ways you can structure a trust that are on the very simple end of the continuum. I call that the possibility of asset protection. Right, right. So that does that include some of the levels of asset protection too, um, as far as the, the simple end might be concerned? Other aspects of the simple end are simply having a conversation, which in my mind is really basic estate planning as well. We've talked in other episodes about financial coordination insurance. And so the first thing is, let's look at your insurance coverage and make sure that your basic insurance coverage, your automobile coverage, your basic homeowner's insurance are really covering your risks. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I ask clients to do is say, okay, let's ask your advisor, let's look at your policy, because some people don't realize what is excluded and included in their policy. They just call up the insurance advisor, I need insurance. Don't Mm -hmm. really have a discussion about the limits, what the different limits apply to, and very specifically about the risk. So in my mind, that's the most basic form of asset protection. So over here, it's like, you absolutely should be thinking about your insurance, your limits, and particularly what it covers. Because Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people don't realize that not everything is covered. There's this concept of an insurable interest. Mm -hmm. Do you have an insurable interest in this issue? And the answer might be, and particularly we live in the Eighth Circuit. We had a case last year Mm -hmm. where it became really clear that I could leave my house to somebody who didn't live in it. Somebody could burn it down after my death, and there's no insurance coverage on that, right? right, So let's talk about making sure that all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed Mm -hmm. when it comes to insurance coverage. Another thing that people overlook as a really basic asset protection strategy is simply having your estate plan in place. I don't remember what the current percentage is. Mm -hmm. I think the number of people with wills and powers of attorney did actually improve during the pandemic. Oh, I bet you're right, right? Because all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, yeah, and I haven't Uh seen a statistic on that, but I know that our call call volume was like nothing we'd ever seen. And I know there was a lot of the do-it-yourselfers going on. But a foundational estate plan is actually part of an asset protection plan. So a couple might come in and you want to look at their various risks, their jobs, and as opposed to having everything in one pot and joint tenancy, which everybody thinks is great because this is, reflects our happy marriage. So that's always a hard conversation to say, well, look, you know, if one of you dies, do you, do you want everything to go to the other? Because, you know, one of the cases I had early on where spouse died, We put assets in her trust. He had access to those assets, but he had an accident that cleaned him out. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we had some assets in her trust is all he had left to live on for the rest of his life. So that whole concept of each spouse having a revocable trust and doing some asset separation. And you can structure the assets in a way that they're similar to joint assets, but for legal purposes, there's some separation. Sure. 
Joy. You also look at state of residences. Right. There's some states, and I've had clients who, oh, I'm going to move to Florida and buy a $10 million house uh-huh. because that's going to be an exempt asset. And I think, and I don't know if this is current because I know enough to say whenever I talk about state rules, I have to look because those rules can change by the minute. Okay. And I serve on the legislative committee in our home state as well as I'm an observer for the Uniform Laws Commission. So I'm like, I never answer a question without saying, well, this was the state of the law last week, but let me check to see if anything changed today. But one of the things to look at is moving to a state that has very protective laws regarding asset protection. My home state of Nebraska isn't really a great state for asset protection. We prefer creditors have rights in this state. Okay, well, that's the state's MO. That's fine. But if I have accumulated some assets and want a state that's more protective... And I actually have said that to our legislators, like, well, maybe we ought to consider a shift in that yeah. so that we can keep people. So it's one of the interesting factors. Our state is one of the states that's fairly high in people leaving. I think Chicago took the cake in the last set of facts that I saw about people departing a city. But that's for a whole lot of reasons other than just um, asset protection type issues. Right, right, right. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. At Foster Group, we know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life and how to get there. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. Um, so what do you think about using a liability, limited liability company or other type of business entities that might be appropriate for asset protection? And so don't you love the call when somebody says to you, I formed an LLC. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Right. What does that mean that you formed an LLC? But definitely an entity of some sort, whether it's a limited liability, a corporation, a partnership or a sole proprietorship, which are your legal forms of entities. Mm-hmm which are different from the tax status of the entities. I think that's a really important thing to know because if we're thinking about asset protection, right there with the business entity, there's two perspectives. Which legal structure is going to give me the most protection from a creditor that might want to sue me? And which of those entities can I make a tax selection that's going to give me the most protection from tax exposures? They're separate questions. They're not the same. So you can't assume that the LLC is the correct entity in all cases, and there's a lot of reasons to form something other than an LLC. Sure. With that said, LLCs are a super common entity, and they do have asset protection, and they're simpler than your historic corporations from the perspective of you don't have the same formalities to maintain the asset protection in the LLC as you do in a corporation. Have to, you, have to, you have to be a little careful about that. So in some states, again, my home state of Nebraska is not super protective of a single-member LLC. So often what we'll do is look at a state that says, okay, there's states that have laws that say a single-member LLC shall have the same protections as a multiple-member LLC. One of those states, at least the last time I looked, 
was <laughs> Wyoming. So we form a lot of entities in Wyoming. Wyoming has a couple great features. They're very protective of the LLCs. They have good rules regarding the LLCs, but they also have no state income tax. Mm. So if you create an LLC that is going to be subject to source income tax rules, you can have that LLC be in Wyoming. There's no state income tax. So it doesn't matter if you're subject to tax in another state. Right, right. Um, Are there some specific considerations that you want to share with respect to using business entities in asset protection? So the primary ones are the ones that I discussed, which is to really give consideration to which jurisdiction. So a lot of people do make the assumption that if I live in New York, I should form a New York LLC. Mm -hmm. That may or may not be correct. Or if I live in, so it's not just a matter of like, what is the purpose that you're forming that entity for? What are you trying to protect? So we talked about the goals of it. And if you're trying to protect intellectual property, we often come up with, have clients come in who are doing projects that involve significant intellectual property in the formation of their entity. Well, there are certain states who have laws that are more protective of intellectual property. So each of those states have rules. So even while I used the example of Wyoming earlier in my discussion because it has no state income tax, I might advise on a different state depending on the particular business that somebody is creating and the exact assets that they're trying to protect and look at the state with the most protective laws. Right, right. So it's very client-specific. So it depends on exactly what the nature of their business is. And It really does. Yeah. Where they live, the nature of their business, what they're planning to do with it. So right. if they've got an idea, like I had a client last week, I'm like, this idea has a great opportunity to potentially go public. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do you a better service by looking at Delaware and a C-Corp. Right, right. So the big picture is really important. So what about using trusts? So trust is another really significant asset protection tool. And again, people will often think that that means, oh, we've got to do one of these domestic asset protection trusts. But really, a domestic asset protection trust is what we call a self-settled trust. I create a trust for myself. Well, it would be better, Rachel, if you created a trust for me because that's a third-party trust. What we used to tell clients is if you've created that third-party trust for a beneficiary, the beneficiary is going to have the protection of a third-party trust. So keep in mind, we're saying, are we thinking about my asset protection Mm -hmm. or are we thinking about the beneficiary's asset protection? Mm -hmm. And both of those play into the discussion about trust. So if I have assets and want asset protection for that, and that's where the layering comes in. So we look at entity formation. We might wrap a trust around it. It might be a self-settled trust Mm -hmm. in a self-settled in a jurisdiction that has rules supporting that. But we also look and say, okay, what I also want to do is, well, if I'm married, I could create an irrevocable trust for my spouse. A really common strategy lately has been what we call a SLAT, which is a spousal access trust. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of that strategy. There's a lot of pros and cons to that, of course. But if what I'm trying to do is say, hmm, I'm going to create an irrevocable trust, And it's going to ultimately go to my kids. So we're going to assume a long-term marriage with the same spouse and kids by the same marriage to make the conversation easy. And let's say I go to South Dakota. South Dakota and Nevada are a couple of my favorite states, although I like all of them for depending on, again, the objectives and goals of the client. But let's say I go to South Dakota. I create an irrevocable trust, which means 
When I put these assets in here, they're out of my estate and they're out of my reach. I create the ability for the spouse to access it by creating spousal access. So this is a fairly simple asset protection strategy where it's not your domestic, your historic domestic asset protection trust, but is one of the ways of creating it. When you create that particular type of trust, I'm doing step one, creating some protection for the assets during life. Mm -hmm. Obviously, to the extent my spouse has access to the assets, there's some exposure there, and there's a whole lot of ins and outs to how you design her rights or his rights to distribution and things like that, which is a whole art and science in and of itself, probably more an art than a science, Mm -hmm. given the (laughs) constantly evolving case laws in that area. But you can also create asset protection for your beneficiaries. And so in that slat, and I'm not assuming a dynasty trust here yet, but let's just say we create this spousal access trust and name our four kids as the ultimate beneficiaries. And those four children, we do this life trust concept. We say, well, we leave this in the trust for the spouse. And instead of saying they get distributions at 30, 35, and 40, maybe we say when they turn 40, they become co-trustees. And when they become 45, they can be their own trustees. So they have a fair amount of control over the assets, but it's a separate asset for asset protection purposes. Okay, okay. Um, Are there some best practices then you use when you create these um, third-party trusts? So one of the biggest things is what you're using for distribution standards. So if I say that this trust shall distribute to a beneficiary $15,000 a month no matter what, then a creditor, and probably whether it's a creditor who sued or a divorcing spouse or whatever the case might be, is going to probably have a right to that distribution. So anytime there's a mandatory distribution, you've got less asset protection. So you've moved that over. And even if there's not a mandatory distribution, so once upon a time, we used to look at the needs of various beneficiaries and set up regular distributions. Mm -hmm. But if you've been distributing a certain amount per month to a beneficiary, Mm -hmm. then you've probably created access on the part of editors of creditors. So we've reconsidered that approach in terms of distribution planning. So it's what you use for distribution standards, what you actually do for distributions. Okay. Now, if I create a trust for you, Rachel, and you are the sole beneficiary and you're going to be the trustee of your own trust share, there's no additional beneficiaries, that is probably going to be considered a property interest sure. and creditors will be able to get to it. Mm-hmm. So if somebody sues you and you lose, I'm probably going to lose on that argument. But a really simple step is I add some additional beneficiaries. So maybe I say, this trust is in trust for Rachel and for Rachel's issue. Mm -hmm. Rachel's the preferred and primary beneficiary. The trustee doesn't really have to worry about whether there's anything left for the kids because if Rachel wants to spend it all, that's okay. Because otherwise the trustee have to worry about those remainder beneficiaries and I want to take that duty away. But just by the fact of having additional beneficiaries, you minimize that argument that this is a property interest. Sure, sure. Another common term people know is the spendthrift clause. It basically says, hey, this is not going to be available to my beneficiaries' creditors. But what happens a lot of time is drafters will put in just a template spendthrift clause, Mm -hmm. and you'll see the same language in trust after trust. But what you should really consider doing is having a spendthrift clause 
that is defined and is unique. So it's drafted specifically to the trust. And the other thing is I'll often look at one of the things that matters is what's the material purpose of the trust? And you may say a material purpose of the trust, the spendthrift clause is the material purpose of the trust. Most trusts should say that. Mm -hmm. But maybe we should go a step further than that and say and have an unrelated trustee is a material purpose of this trust. So maybe I don't want you, Rachel, to be the trustee of your own trust because I'm actually worried about you getting the inheritance and spending it all like you're going to plane to Vegas and you're going to blow all of it in 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. So I don't want you to become the trustee of your own trust. And I say having keeping these assets in trust to make sure there's a stream of income for Rachel's life is a material purpose of this trust. Okay. That helps support it. So you want to really get clear about the material purposes. Mm -hmm. If we have particular issues of a child or a beneficiary of some sort who might have a drug problem or alcohol right. problem, we might not want a really or a marital issue. Mm -hmm. We really think that our, our child's spouse married them for their potential inheritance. Mm -hmm. And so we want to like really say, well, we really want to provide for the beneficiary. We want to make sure there's a pot that lasts for life. We really want to keep this in trust for the long term. Say that and give some guidance. I used to have what we call distribution restrictions that say there will be absolutely no distribution if this child doesn't go to church every single right. Sunday. Right. Come on. You know, they're, they've got COVID one that, Sunday, yeah. we, and then we cut, the trustee cuts them off from distributions. Mm -hmm. Instead, a lot of times we talk about distribution guidance. This is a friend of mine in Chicago uh, who's a really great attorney who said, yeah, really think about what you're doing to your trustees and distribution advisors by putting those right. strict distribution requirements. So talk about family values. Right. The other thing in a trust is to really think about situs and governing law. So just like LLCs, if you live in Illinois, there might be an assumption that you should create an Illinois trust. Now, there's ins and outs to where you can create a trust, but I often create trusts in states other than where the settler lives. And the other thing I do is make sure that it's easy to change the situs and the governing law if the situation is appropriate. Most people move at some point. Sure. Particularly at retirement. They might want a warmer client. They might want to be near grandchildren, whatever the case might be. It's really common to move, and the trust should consider that. Right, right. The other thing is what we call a directed trust. So it used mm. to be that a trustee had the authority to do everything. And that power sometimes would be all-powerful, and could be problematic. And so then people would instead use a family member to be their trustee. Well, a family member is not always a great solution either. So the directed trusts allow a bifurcation of the roles of the trustee. So you can have an administrative trustee, a general trustee, an investment advisor. You can have various committees that serve various roles as opposed to having the trustee do all of that. And so not that that's the case for every single sure, trust, sure. but that is another method that's used, particularly in the asset protection context. Right, right. Um, and you've talked about jurisdiction too. So is that important when you're um, uh, considering a domestic asset protection trust? So for the domestic asset protection, I think it's important for any trust mm -hmm. to avoid the assumption that we should always create a trust in the home state is that's not correct. There's a lot of reasons to do something else. But the domestic asset protection trust, that's even more common. So the domestic asset protection trust is self-settled. I've created a trust for myself. 
and I am or at least am a potential beneficiary of the trust. So this, there's various states, and, and our neighboring state of South Dakota is one that got into that early. Alaska got into it early, Nevada, Delaware. But now it's become a fairly common. I don't remember the number of states as of today, so I'm mm-hmm. not going to cite a number and be wrong, but there's a significant number of states that have select, have asset protection provisions so that you can create a self-settled trust in that state. But what's important to know, and there's Steve Oceans every year publishes a list of the best jurisdiction for the domestic asset protection trust, and I, I love that list. And he goes through the various things that are important. And again, it's about the client objectives. What are we trying to protect from? So which state's laws are going to give us that protection. So things that we look at is, who are exception creditors? Do we accept child support, alimony, property division, tort claims? Is there a time frame? What does that time frame look like? Once a jurisdiction is selected, it's super important to make sure that the trust actually considers that state statutes. And again, they change all the time. So I like to make sure I have a an advisor in the state who's paying close attention to the state law changes and they can help you with, Oh yeah, that changed last year. So you can't pull up the trust you did last year and think that that's going to work this year because it probably won't. But so you got to really think about the requirements to come within the statute, just not within the trust, but there's rules outside things you have to do outside the trust as well. And it does help if the settler has some contacts in the state. So, You know, our home state's Nebraska, and it's really common for people to buy hunting ground in South Dakota, right. and the same is true for a lot of the Midwest states. Mm-hmm. So South Dakota works really well for yes. those. We have yeah, clients does. in California who like to have places in Nevada and often might want to establish residency at some point in Nevada because the California tax rate is 13.38%, and Nevada has none. So that's not a bad that's option. A so if they have contacts in Nevada, that might be a great state. And we also want to look at the trustee, investment advisor, distribution advisor. Who do they want to be? Where do they have to be? Okay, okay. Well, that's a lot of great information. Is there anything else you want to share with us? Is just some final thoughts about asset protection? Well, I just want to reiterate that asset protection is something that should be considered as part of every estate plan. There's nothing so difficult in my career as watching somebody who spent a life accumulating their wealth and then losing it because basic asset protection wasn't considered. So early in my practice, it's one of those things, right, that I thought this was theoretical when people talked about. And then you see people actually lose assets they've spent a lifetime accumulating. It's heartbreaking. It is. So it's just like business succession planning should begin the day you open the business. Asset protection planning should really be a part of everyday life. Every time you buy something, sell something, start a business, have a life change, think about the estate plan, and the asset protection planning. Yeah, well, thank you. And thanks, Rachel, for interviewing me today. You're very welcome. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and stay tuned for our weekly release.
Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.